Um, there you go. Cool. Um, so today we have our uh, church covenant statement at the beginning of the month. Um, typically in the first service, the beginning of the month, we rotate back and forth between our covenant statement and our statement of faith. And we'll pick one element of those uh, things to talk about just a little bit more. Um, and so today is covenant statement. Uh, and it's funny because we have a lot of people in the church right now, but they're not all members. And the way our covenant statement and state of faith works maybe seems silly a little bit, but we only have members read. Um, so we may have to double up as many people as we have because <laughs> the members are a little bit shy today. Uh, so um, we're going to run through those, and uh, I'm just going to call on you as we get to them rather than try to pick them all at the time and feel silly when I miss one. So um, let's pray, and then we're going to read the covenant statement, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about one of them. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for your goodness to us through Jesus Christ. Uh, God, we pray that you be with uh, Jay and his family as they're traveling uh, and as they enjoy some vacation time together over the next couple of weeks. Uh, God, we pray that you would bless them, encourage them, uh, refresh them, uh, and uh, bring them back safely to us, ready to serve once more. Lord, I pray that as we look over these things this morning, that we wouldn't be careless uh, with them. Uh, these are promises that we make as members of this church uh, that we believe and that we uh, have scriptural reasons to believe are are things that you want us to engage in. Uh, And so, Father, I pray that we would consider your word today, uh, consider how it's reflected in our covenant statement, uh, and consider how we can honor you with our lives. God, thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. um, Just really quickly before, like why, why do we make covenant statements? Um, and I've said this before, um, and I'll probably say it again, but the God we serve is a covenant God. He makes covenant promises to us. And we're called to a covenant family. Now that family spans the globe and spans time, right? With all the believers ever who have been, and you could argue also for the Old Testament saints, right, that we're one flock under one shepherd. Um, but why would we make covenant statements to each other? Well, because we have biblical responsibilities to each other as a church. Based on the biblical truth that is presented to us in the Bible, based on the fact that we serve a covenant God who loves us because of his covenant love. It's not any kind of measure of our our day-to-day holiness or our ability to obey day-to-day that makes us uh, the beneficiaries of God's promises, but it's the fact that God is a covenant God and he keeps his promises. As he told the people through Malachi, um, I am faithful, therefore I do not change, therefore you are not destroyed. Uh, praise God for that, right? Um, so, we make covenant statements to each other because we serve a covenant God. And he's called us into covenant relationship with himself and with each other. So, uh, Jim, would you mind uh, taking the first point, please, uh, in the introduction?
Eileen, can you take the next one? No, I'm sorry. One second. Uh, I can't advance the slide. Thanks. No, it's still up there. There we go. Kevin, would you mind taking the next one? All right, good. I'm glad you guys all got that. I'm sure you've all checked all the boxes, and we're good to go, right? Um, it's a huge, it's a mouthful, right? It's a whole lot of things that we're promising uh, to do for each other. Um, and anytime you know, anytime you try to make a cohesive statement about the Bible, I'm being careful because I realize I'm making a general statement here, right? Um, you're bound to either 
go to great excess and talk about everything in the Bible all at once, or to talk about one thing to the exclusion of all else and kind of go past the point on that one thing. Um, so uh, I've made my practice, whenever it's my turn to do a covenant statement or a statement of faith, um, to try to focus on one aspect of one of these covenants, right? Um, and so today, we're, we're zeroing in on the um, promotion of the health of the church. You know, how is it that we contribute to the health of the church, right? And so, um, I don't know if I put the slides in. Yeah, okay, so I did it like this. I broke it up into um, five sentences, five statements, that I think uh, help to hit, hit what are we doing, right? So the first one is that we're going to work to maintain a healthy church by what? By assembling regularly to worship God according to the scriptures. Um, you know, in the second statement there, we're, we're going to absorb the ordinances. That is the Lord's Supper and baptism. Uh, we're going to uphold the statement of faith. Those are all those things, uh, I think there's seven uh, points in our statement of faith uh, that are biblically necessary to unite with this church and to be uh, a member of this church. We think these are seven things that are critical based on what the Bible tells us. Um, and so if you're going to join the church, that needs to be part of uh, who you are as a believer. Um, and we, we recognize that maybe not everybody would agree with those things, but we try to make it general so that we're not getting rid of anyone when we say, hey, you know, would you like to join with us in this church? Would you like to be a member of this church? We don't want anybody who has a little minor point of doctrine uh, difference than us to be like, well, I love you guys, but I can't be a member, right? Um, so each one of these things are things that we can do to contribute to the health of this church. Um, but as I was looking at this, uh, at this particular statement, I was thinking, you know, we have a purpose here in our regular assembly. And that's just not just to obey one verse in Hebrews, right? Um, it's so that we can have the opportunity to know each other, so we can obey point two, or B, which was all the uh, one another passages in the New Testament. Those are important. So we need to be together. We need to know each other to be able to do that. But what's the, what's the real main purpose here behind us coming to church? Um, and what I focused in on this week was worshiping God. Because if we do everything else and we don't worship God in accordance with the Word, if we disobey the second commandment, then we're losing everything that we have uh, everything that's distinctive about us from the world around us if we're not worshiping God. And so I wanted to talk about this week, what does it mean to worship God? Um, and again, I came up with one of those hopefully cohesive statements. Um, it must be the aim of any church to understand, to teach, to encourage growth of or in, and call outsiders to biblical worship of the one true God. Um, you guys visiting with us this week, uh, how many of you guys heard the Adon sometime this week, uh, the call to prayer? You know, I, I think about that when I hear the call to prayer, that what they're really doing is calling uh, for submission, to worship, to a God who does not exist, to a, another God. There may be similarities between the God of the Bible and the God of the Quran, but they are not the same being. Um, one is describing the God who actually did create the universe and the one who, before whom will stand at the end of time, the other one does not. So they're calling someone to false worship. They're calling someone to disobey the first and the second commandment. And then a whole bunch of other commandments of Scripture that are kind of in line with that. 
So as a church, our job is to call people to worship the one true God and to proper worship of that God. That's a, sort of the distinction between the first and the second commandment. There's one God you need to worship Him, and also don't worship Him in a way that He hasn't prescribed. So what is biblical worship? Now, I didn't do this. We're going to get super uh, detailed on the meanings of these words, but I did want us to understand kind of the cross-section of the meaning of words that the Bible uses that commonly, is, that commonly are translated for worship. Right? So you have uh, sedid, which is very comparable to the Arabic sajid, which means to bow down, uh, to pay homage to. Um, this is something that you wouldn't do to anybody ordinarily. You do it to somebody in power, uh, and properly with God, you would worship God in this way. Um, shecha, which is to bow down, as in for a monarch or a superior. Somebody, you, you find this in several examples in the Bible where somebody bows down to a king or to somebody who's in charge of them. Uh, kara, which is just to bring down low. It's more like the idea of humbling yourself. But it's still physical bowing is used that way. And then the final one that's translated as worship and service sometimes is abit. And it's from the word for slave. And it means to work or to serve. It's used both in secular concept, uh, uh, constructs and it's also used within the line of the priestly service. So you have this kind of big cross-section. What, is, well, what does that generally amount to? Well, I thought it would be helpful for us to look at Psalm 22. Because in the end of Psalm 22, we have like three of these words in a row. And they're used all together in the same situation for a person who's actually worshiping God. Of course, Psalm 22 starts out with uh, the, the, the passage that Jesus quotes from, where he, says, uh, where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Now, this is, a, this is David, um, I believe. Yeah, the Psalm of David. And he's crying out, most likely in a situation where he needs help, where he needs salvation. But what's so interesting is that this psalm, in many, many, many places, points to Jesus Christ and finds its fulfillment ultimately in Jesus Christ. Um, points like the, the point I just made that he, he quoted from this passage. Um, and yet, um, in, uh, in Psalm 22, verse 6, he says, I am a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. This is almost verbatim what the Pharisees and the passers-by say as Jesus is hanging on the cross. Right? And then uh, after that, of course, we have the, uh, we have the fact that uh, in verse 12, he says, strong bulls surround me. The bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions. Uh, they uh, tear their prey. They open their mouths against me. Um, he talks about his hands and hands being pierced. He talks about being poured out like water, uh, being thirsty, um, uh, and, and needing something to drink, uh, having his hands and feet pierced, bones on display, divide my clothes, cast lots for my garments, all of these things that happen with the Messiah. 22. Quoted by the author of Hebrews. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly I will praise you. Quoted specifically of Jesus in Psalm 22. And then the point that this, all this brings out, you know, we can talk about this point by point, I'm not going to do that, we simply don't have time for that, kind of culminates in verse 27. 
And he says, the result of all this, the result of the fulfillment of all this, is that all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Let that Genesis 12 promise ring, ring back in your memory. Right? All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through this one. Because all the families of the earth are going to bow down rightly, worshiping him correctly. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. See how that, that bowing down recognizes the full authority, the sovereign power of God. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship, bow down before him. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Strictly physical thing here, kneeling, but it's also translated as worship. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him, and perhaps a better translation would be a posterity will serve him. This is that word avad, or work for him, or serve him. The idea here is that there each successive generation who comes to trust in the Lord and experience our salvation will tell the generation to come of his mighty deeds. See, they will proclaim, uh, future generations will be told about the Lord, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn that he has done it, that he has accomplished salvation. And not just salvation in a temporal sense from a, from a physical enemy or from a situation, whatever that situation might be for you. The idea is ultimate salvation from the wrath of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So, this whole idea is wrapped up, true worship is wrapped up in an authentic recognition of the superior power of God. I, I put it this way, I should have just read the slide. Worshiping God in the Old, Old Testament indicates bowing down before him in humble submission, acknowledging his authority, his superiority, and agreeing to obedient service to him. That's what we have in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have a few other words. There's actually more than this. I just chose these three because I think they help us get a good cross-section. We have Sibo, which is, and I don't know how to pronounce these, so whatever, um, but you know, I can look them up in a dictionary. Uh, to reverence, to worship, to adore. Now, ironically, this passage is used in Matthew chapter 15, 9, uh, verse 9, where uh, Jesus is saying about the Pharisees, you know, rightly did Isaiah speak of you when he said you would worship me in vain, uh, you know, serving me with your lips, but in your heart you're far from me. But it's also used in Acts chapter 17. You'll see it actually a lot in the book of Acts describing when you see the phrase a worshiper of God or a God-fearer. It's sort of the adjective form of this. They're a, a, somebody who worships God. Uh, and then latria, which is service rendered to God. That would be like in Romans 12.1. This is your spiritual service of worship, or this is your spiritual worship, or your true worship, depending on the translation you're reading. Then proskuneo. I go down on my knees, do obeisance to, or worship. Obeisance is really it covers two things. One, it covers the bowing down part. And that's how it's mostly used today, if somebody uses it today. Um, but biblically, it means more than that. Um, it's actually, in, in, in the way we get the English word obey, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but it originally comes from this word obeisance. The idea is that we are not just bowing down, but that, that bowing down indicates a promise and a subservience and a willingness and an agreement to obey. Um, unfortunately, I don't know why, but when I do these slides, apparently my highlighting doesn't come across. 
I, I highlighted all the words worship here. And they're all this word, proskuneo. That's the word you're going to find when people worship Jesus in Matthew, over and over again when people worship Jesus, or like when the leper comes down and worships for Jesus. It's, it's this word. In Revelation, when everyone's worshiping the Lamb and worshiping before the throne, that's this word. And so that's why I chose this particular passage, because this word is used over and over and over, and over again in this passage. Sir, the woman said, this is the woman in the well, John chapter 4, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. That is, same idea that Paul hits on later, that the oracles of God have been given to and entrusted to the Jews. Lots of people have an idea of God, but the Jews were given the oracles of God. So when he talks about salvation is from the Jews, he's not talking about from them as a people in and of themselves, but as the people of the Lord who have been given his word. And then Jesus said, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I am the one speaking to you. I am he. Now, of course, a lot can be said about this passage. Um, I'm going to restrain myself and only talk about it as it refers to worship. There's a whole lot of suggestions about what worship, who's worshiping, and what right worship looks like within this passage. If you investigate how the Samaritans worshipped, and you investigate how the Jews at the time of Jesus worshipped. But what Jesus points to is the fact that there isn't a right place, or there's soon going to be not a right place anymore, physical place on earth to worship. No doubt about it, in Deuteronomy, God said, I'm going to select a place for worship, and that's where you're going to build my temple. And that's where David built it, or that's where David found it. Of course, uh, God pointed out the site to David, and then David pointed that out to Solomon, and then Solomon built the temple with the stuff that David had, had, had made, but it was all under the direction of God. God showed him a place for worship. And when Solomon, you know, dedicates the temple, he's like, you know, wherever you've been over the whole earth, you can look to this place and repent. And if you're really repenting, God will bring you back. Right? And he asks God, please listen to the prayers when they're directed to this place. But what Jesus says is, it's not a physical place. Now, guys, it's according to the truth of the word. Not just the truth of the word, but it's the truth of the inner reality of a relationship with God. A real and a full redemption, not shadows and types anymore. But a real redemption made through the blood of Christ. Not a temporary redemption and a picture of future redemption through the blood of animals. Not a repeated sacrifice year after year after year, but a once for all sacrifice through Jesus Christ. So when she says, you know, I know that the Messiah is going to figure it all out, he's going to bring this all into understanding for us. And Jesus says, that's me. That's what I'm here to do. And the one thing that I didn't want to miss 
and all this wondering, what is worship? I think those things are important. But how is it that we are brought in, drawn near, so that we can worship? The first of these slides is going to be, what does it look like? True biblical worship is humble submission before. An adoration of God. And provokes sincere, obedient service. It's all that. And I've said it before, you know, like a lot of times we get this idea that worshiping God is when you get really emotional and you sing a song that you love. Well, that can be worship, but it's not necessarily worship. Because if you get all emotional and you're singing a song you love, guess what? Every pagan in the world does that on his drive to or from work. Or when he gets in trouble with his girlfriend, or when he has a financial situation, he's you know, singing some song about how bad it is to be in the establishment. You know what I mean? People get excited and emotional about a lot of things, and they sing or whatever out of it. Singing with emotion is not unique to Christianity. It can be part of authentic worship, and it is a part of authentic worship. And I would argue that it's an indispensable part of authentic worship, which is why we do it in church. But it's not nearly all of what worship is. And it's not nearly the basis of worship. It also includes work. That's why we have that list of things that we're going to do. It takes effort. The truth of God's Word calls us to behave in a certain way. So the second slide that I had to kind of the second statement to kind of bring this together for us was that true biblical worship must come from a heart that's been reconciled to God. That only happens through Jesus Christ. Wow. I kind of butchered that slide, didn't I? That only happens through Jesus Christ. Proper biblical worship of God is a critical part of the health of the church. Since that's the case, I think a few questions are in order. These are personal questions. You should answer them in the quietness of your own mind. And under serious consideration, am I here, not just today, but ask yourself this when you walk into a church building on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday or whenever you go in there, am I here to worship and serve God? Or am I here for some other reason? Ask yourself this question. Am I here to worship and serve God? Or for some other reason? And that would include the question, right? Do I know God through Jesus Christ? Or do I think that I'm worshiping God because I do all the right things that my parents taught me to do when I was a kid? Right? I don't know how many people are like me and grew up in the church and had no concept of what the gospel was, but had every concept of what a Christian should do and how they should talk. I knew those things. I didn't know what it meant to submit to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I didn't know what it meant to know Him. And I, I imagine that's some people here, maybe some people who are listening, I don't know. I can't imagine I'm the only one who grew up in a church and thought he was saved. Second question is, am I concerned about the health of my church? Um, and I'm just tell you something, your prayer life will, will reflect this. How you pray will reflect where your concern lies. And when I say for my church, again, we're not 
talking about a building. I mean, you know, you can look left and look right. Are you concerned about these people sitting next to you? I realize we're two different local churches together and then spread the word, and you guys are from several different local churches as well. But I mean, I want you to do that when you get home, right? Am I concerned about my church? The people that I see week in and week out? The people that I gather to worship with? Am I concerned about them? Am I concerned about their spiritual growth? What can I do to promote the health of my local church? I'm not going to go there, but the New Testament, especially Paul's letters, especially 1 Corinthians, are full of ways that you can serve others in the body of Christ. Um, Jay says it before, and I adopted it because I love it. He says, sometimes finding your spiritual gift is looking around and seeing something that needs to be done and doing it. It's that simple. That means encouraging somebody, praying for somebody, helping them move. If that means, you know, whatever it means, making a meal for somebody's in the house, whatever it means, calling somebody to encourage them, sending them a text of Scripture. What can I do to promote the health of my local church? That's our list. We're going to work. We're going to absorb the, observe, not absorb, observe the ordinances, uphold the statement of faith, give of our resources, and follow the example of our Savior who served others. Um, Let's pray. Then we are going to sing a song and we will take the Lord's Supper after that.